Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I'm Jason Scorse. Well, what a difference two weeks makes. Uh, The last episode here was right before the Biden administration was going to be inaugurated. And here we are two weeks later. First thing I have to say is it feels like six months. I mean, my whole perception of time has been shattered. It's literally been less than two weeks. And... I just can't tell you how different it feels. It's just, you know, maybe many of you are experiencing the same thing. I think it's both because of the hope of sanity and a new administration and also just the weight of an insane racist lunatic and a mob of cult fanatics backing him that were in control of all the levers of government. And now that's completely flipped. And again, not all the levers. There was Nancy Pelosi in the House, but, you know, the White House and the Senate. So I think also the fact that Mitch McConnell is no longer in charge of the Senate, that we have unified Democratic control, even though obviously very, very slim margins. But boy, does it just feel so different. And the weight of the evil of the Trump administration just kind of being gone. Um, you know, we'll we'll talk a lot about the legacy. And in fact, that's today's topic. Uh, I'm going to have a lot to say about the Biden administration over the coming weeks and months and years. But I want to give them some time to kind of pass some stuff right right now. They're trying to pass this big covid relief bill, one point nine trillion. Of course, the Republicans are playing, you know, bad faith, you know, spoilers trying to come in with insulting, ridiculous, lowball offers to, in this name of bipartisanship. And so far, Biden is giving them the middle finger with a smile. And so I really want to say how things play out before I really talk in detail about the Biden administration. It's only been two weeks. I think, you know, although I give him an A plus for the personnel and for his start, and, you know, he has the hardest job in the world right now. And we just got to kind of see it play out. So, you know, once some legislating starts going on, uh, I will I will talk about, you know, what's going on with that and, and how we can all be involved. I will also talk a lot about his climate policy because some of that has actually started through executive orders. So, again, there's going to be a lot to talk about. And unlike the last four years, a lot of it is good. And so that is just a much better place to be. But today's topic is back to kind of the dark. Uh, we had a insurrection uh, on January 6th, a violent insurrection that in which multiple people were killed, including a cop. Uh, many cops were beaten. Uh, the Capitol was desecrated. And if things had gone, you know, a different way here or there and a couple small, you know, chance issues, we could have had members of Congress, even the vice president, assassinated. So it was really bad, but could have been a lot worse. And it was the first real domestic terror event of this magnitude uh, that 
you know, really shock the nation. Now, of course, Republicans are like pretending that it's, you know, it's all overblown and let's move on. I mean, just think about that. These are these are these fuckers who have, you know, who spent years on Hillary's email, years, dozens of hearings on Benghazi. And then there's literally an insurrection in the Capitol. And a month later, they're like, move on, nothing to see here. You know, so again, just the the treasonous, cowardly behavior of the Republican Party is just it is something to behold. To me, it's not surprising, but it is always something to behold. So for this conversation today, I wanted to bring back a guest that I had uh, a while ago, Jason Blazakis. He is one of the experts on domestic terrorism and white nationalism in the country. He directs the Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism at the Middlebury Institute. And uh, I think he's going to be a great great person to get a handle on what's going on with this movement. So without further ado, I bring you Jason Blazakis. So I am here with Jason Blazakis. Jason, thanks for joining me again. Great to be on the program again, Jason. Good to, good to hear your voice. And you as well. Well, well, so, you know, we have a lot to discuss here, uh, but I'd just like it if you could start with a, a general sense of this threat posed by white supremacists, white nationalists in the U.S. And if you want to define the groups as you see best, please do so. You know, we want to get a sense. How many people are out there with a propensity for violence? How are they organized? You know, what do you think their targets are going to be? Just do we even have a sense of, of, of the scale here? So that's a, uh, so much to that question, Jason. Uh, in, in terms of the, the threat it, it poses now, I, I think people should not be under the impression that what happened on the 6th of January is a one-off event. I think there is still the distinct possibility of uh, additional, what I would call um, radical extreme right-wing violence because the movement itself is, is composed of an eclectic mix of, of organizations and individuals ranging from white supremacists on the, the one hand, um, groups um, associated with uh, neo-Nazi thinking like the Atomwaffen Division and now rebranding itself as the National Socialist Order to groups on the anti-government side of the spectrum, you know, the kind of the quintessential militia organizations like the Oath Keepers and Three Percenters uh, who may not necessarily imbibe solely a, a white supremacist uh, way of thinking, but are also motivated um, within its membership around core issues like the perception that the government's going to take all, all their guns. Uh, and then, of course, you have the, the Boogaloo movement, which is kind of a, a quasi-militia uh, movement, but uh, even more informal than, say, the Oath Keepers and Free Percenters, who, who are all decentralized in a way. But, you know, the Boogaloo movement is even more decentralized than them and have a really eclectic philosophy where you have libertarian um, overtones with the organization, white supremacist overtones to the organization and quintessential anti-government overtones to the group as well. So it's a really, uh, again, an eclectic mix and movement. And, and for that reason, to me, it's a, a very significant threat um, and one that will endure over these next uh, few years because the perceived grievances that these uh, organizations and individuals who comprise them have. And in that sense, I think, um, it, it's important to, to just note that the grievances um, that are animating them have attracted widespread support. Um, and that's really worrisome. 
you, you, you have perhaps anywhere up to hundreds of thousands of individuals who have extremist beliefs. Now, that doesn't mean if they have an extremist belief that they'll pivot to political violence, right? But you have individuals in this country that, that generally do believe some of the, the grievances put forward by these more extreme groups like the Boogaloo movement, the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, and White Supremacists. So, you know, in terms of scale, um, the, the, the population um, base in which these groups can tap into and radicalize is pretty significant, but hard to put a precise number on it, Jason. Right, right. No, that makes sense. And I think, you know, there's just so much new information coming to light because so many of these people in the January 6th didn't really fit the typical profiles, I think, or maybe, maybe, maybe exactly. you disagree with that. But it did seem like what I've been reading, you know, 45 year old, you know, biz, small business owners who aren't associated with any of these groups, but just kind of got attracted to the capital for, for whatever reason. Um, I, you know, you mentioned the Boogaloo movement and I, I, you know, that's a little personal to me because, you know, it, some of the violence here happened in my backyard. And in fact, the, 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 the find the, that shootout that ended up getting Stephen Carrillo was literally, uh, you know, a couple hundred yards from one of my friend's homes in, um, in the mountains. I mean, this is, this is dirt road practically stuff. And I had passed this guy's home a hundred times and that's where the cop was killed, who was from my city. And so it's a, you know, it was something close, you know, here we are, Santa Cruz, liberal California, and we have these right wing, you know, terrorists. And one thing, I don't know if you caught this, but both Mike Pence and Ted Cruz in the fall blamed the murder of those cops by Stephen Carrillo on Antifa and on left wing. And I just thought, holy moly, like literally these, these this is a right wing guy killing police. And they just the vice president and Senator Cruz just straight out lied about who was responsible. Did you, did you catch that? Oh, absolutely. I, I caught that. And uh, I wrote a piece with a, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Colin Clark, who works with uh, me at the, the Sufon group. I have many jobs, as you know, Jason, one of them is, is working there. And we, we wrote a piece about um, Antifa and, and how Antifa doesn't meet the, the litmus test for being designated as a, a terrorist group, because, of course, the president, um, former President Trump at that time, um, had said that he was going to consider labeling Antifa as a, a terrorist group. So um, I, I, I am definitely aware of uh, the Pence and Cruz rhetoric, and, and they were uh, absolutely incorrect um, in the assessment of who was responsible for not only the Santa Cruz attack, but of course, um, you know, Stephen Cree is alleged to have killed a uh, federal um, police officer in Oakland, California, um, a, a black police officer as well, right? So um, Carrillo is uh, on the hook for multiple um, murders here, as well as the murder in Ben Lomond that you're referring to. And it, it's really a shame that we have senior political leaders who are trying to um, create threats where threats don't exist. And then in the same token, by doing that, they underplay um, the, the threat posed by individuals like Stephen Carrillo and the Boogaloo movement more generally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so moving on, maybe to talk a little bit about the January 6th, you know, I, I was one of the least surprised people on the planet during this, because to me, it was just a natural evolution of a violent conspiratorial movement that's been really enshrined in Republican politics for decades. And it had its hero in Trump. It finally had a pretty much out and out avowed white supremacist you know, even if he was doing it for opportunistic reasons, he was saying all the exact things that white supremacists wanted to hear. And he, they, you know, they had their hero. And so I, I guess the question for you is, you know, both, 
you know, GOP complicity in kind of festering this this movement and this monster that we now have to deal with? And also, do you think that the mainstream, the people who were surprised, are kind of getting the gravity of the threat now? So like you, Jason, I was not surprised by the events of January 6th. I guess the only surprise I had was the ease in which the individuals who uh, stormed the Capitol were able to get onto the Capitol grounds and get so close to the lawmakers. And I, I think that that's illustrative of the fact that um, there was a, a lack of preparation and seriousness in which the, the threat was considered by law enforcement in Washington, D.C., as represented by the Capitol Hill police, right? So in that sense, um, not surprised like you. Um, unfortunately, the, the movement has been able to, to get a lot of air and energy because of the uh, normalization of these messages that have occurred by uh, people who are in a mainstream political party. United States has two political parties, right? And, and one of these political parties, unfortunately, has given a lot of air to um, the, the, the radical um, component of the party because of the perception um, the party has in needing that, that radical wing to, to survive politically. And I think it's a miscalculation on their part. I think they, that, that's going to hurt the, the GOP in, in the long and medium run. And we saw, I think, in a lot of ways with the result of the election um, of President Biden and the election in Georgia, that it was a profound miscalculation. So the, the idea that there needs to be some kind of work within the, the base to continue to placate these radical um, individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, is, is going to lead to the ultimate undoing of the, the party, I believe. And it's very worrisome, but it's this normalization that makes it so dangerous too, right? If, if you have people like President Trump, Ted Cruz, Senator Hawley, um, essentially echo some of these uh, fringe concepts and ideas, then it becomes more popular amongst those individuals who may not be part of these groups that we're talking about, like the Oath Keepers. And Jason, your point on um, a lot of unaffiliated individuals, for instance, in, in, in your question um, before, um, not necessarily part of these groups, but still um, were motivated to actually um, you know, storm the Capitol and a lot of those arrests ended up of being individuals who, who weren't part of, say, the Oath Keepers, right? And to me, that's illustrative of, of the success, unfortunately, the radical right has had in normalizing your message through the mouthpieces of, of certain politicians like Ted Cruz. Yeah, yeah, no, it has been something to behold, no doubt. And, and, and you know, that, that final part of the question about, you know, you're, you're probably one of the people that's getting a, a lot, of, lot of interview time these days. And do you see mainstream kind of media and institutions getting the gravity of what's going on now and that this is not going to be a passing thing? That this is here and they're going to they're going to devote attention to it for, you know, for as long as we need to, to deal with it. Oh, I, I think so. And I, you know, I, I just looked at the metrics of how many times I, I've talked to the press in the month of January. I had you know, more than 30 press interactions, and the bulk of which were related to January 6th and the, the threat posed by the far right. You know, throughout 2020, the, the metrics are very different. I think I had 50 press engagements and probably a small percentage of those engagements, maybe 20 to 30% dealt with talking to media about the, the radical right. So just in in that one month alone, I think January 6th is being looked at by the mainstream media as a really important event in which the, the landscape, the threat landscape posed by violent actors has, has shifted. I think there's finally 
a, a, a kind of come to Jesus like moment for, for the mainstream media. Uh, and unfortunately it took an event like January 6th to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. Well, let's move on then to kind of some of the, the responses here, um, which I know you're also an expert on, you know, we're only two weeks into the Biden administration. So there's not a lot to assess right now, but I do read about this kind of more generic three point plan that he had put out on how to combat that the domestic terrorism threat. And, so again, you know, no, you know, acknowledging that we're only a couple of weeks in here, but just on the kind of personnel that he's choosing, the rhetoric that he's using, how do you how do you see, you know, how they're 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 taking this? What's your take on that? So I I have a, a, a an individual that I know. Um, his name's Josh Gelter. He's assigned to doing um, this review for for the White House. I have a lot of respect for him. He was in government at the same time I was in government. He was a senior director at the National Security Council for counterterrorism during the Obama administration. So I think Biden brought in the right person to conduct this review. For the U.S. government to shift from, say, uh, a focus on the Salafi jihadist threat as represented by ISIS and al-Qaeda to a, a threat uh, related to the homegrown domestic terrorism threat requires a, a, a shift in government. And the government shifting you know, in terms of bureaucracy and priorities um, never happens quickly. So when I, I saw the, the three-point plan um, by the Biden administration, it made sense to me because I know how slow it is for, for government to shift to um, emerging um, challenges. Even though this is a challenge that has existed for years, um, the Trump administration didn't pay any attention to it whatsoever. So the, the first step in that process, I, I think that the Biden administration has said they're going to do is to simply uh, assess the threat, to understand the, the scale and gravity um, of the threat as posed by the anti-government groups and white supremacists that, that populate it. And in doing that, they're going to essentially ask the FBI and DHS to provide very likely a, a classified report that documents um, what they're seeing in terms of this threat. And from there, they're going to likely start shifting resources. And in government, you can't really easily shift resources until you have kind of a bona fide you know, assessment of the threat by various government agencies who are responsible for, for tracking those threats. So I do get the fact that um, it may take some time for that to occur. Um, I think that review is going to take 100 days. Another important component of that review, of course, is the, the role of social media as well. They're going to be studying that um, threat posed by social media and the use of social media tools by the far right in the context of that assessment um, during that 100-day time period. So I imagine at the conclusion of that 100-day time period in which they're assessing the threat, we're going to see perhaps some practical um, things um, taken by, in steps taken by the, by the administration as well. So that's kind of my preliminary review so far of, of uh, the uh, three-point plan for what it's worth. Great, great. And I noticed also you know, I pay attention to this rhetoric, you know, that Biden's been using the term white supremacist and white nationalist and, you know, terms that, again, you would think wouldn't be controversial and given the history of America. But, you know, presidents rarely use that term, especially in the context of kind of counterterrorism and domestic threats. And so I've been at least pleased to see the rhetoric shift. It seems like he he gets it. So that, that that's certainly encouraging. Um, you know, there's also talk about anti-domestic terrorism legislation. There have been, I've been reading about people in law enforcement, people in policy who are, feel like there's, there needs to be some new laws that give extra sanction to these groups and perhaps some additional powers to the government to kind of uncover them or track them. And I know, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons here that gets kind of tricky because these type of laws can be abused by bad actors. And 
So I guess, you know, what, what's your take here on do we need a new law to, to address this threat or is existing law if the resources are reallocated, you know, sufficient? Oh, yeah, great question, Jason. And um, I think it's an important question where Congress at least has to have this debate on whether or not there is a necessity to have a, a domestic terrorism law. This is, this is where I, I come down on it. I think there is a, a clear racial equity dimension to this. And I think that's connected to the stats. And I think the stats in way of um, stats associated with far-right attacks is really clear. So just one database, according to the University of Maryland's uh, Pyrus database, uh, most acts of terrorism hate crime in the United States between 2008, 2018, perpetrated by the extreme far-right, which of course includes white supremacist motivated violence. And the targets of those attacks have been disproportionately directed at African-American, Jewish, Latinx, and LGBTQ communities. So clear racial equity dimension here as we think about um, whether or not there should be a domestic terrorism law. Protected groups of people are being killed, but the killers who are often white people, they're not being charged for committing an act of domestic terrorism because no charge exists. And the result of that is you have people like Dylan Roof who killed nine black Americans while they were worshiping in a church in South Carolina, never ended up being charged with an act of terrorism. Um, you have people like Christopher Hassan, um, Coast Guard member, white supremacist, who was on the precipice of carrying out a major attack. Um, and he ended up only getting 13 years in prison. In contrast, you would have individuals who provide uh, support to international terrorist groups, say from places like Detroit, Michigan, and sending that you know, form of finance to a group like Al-Shabaab in Somalia could end up getting 20 years in, in jail. So I, I think in the United States, we have a deficiency in law, which makes it harder for us to label individuals who are killing protected communities as terrorists. So I, I think there needs to be a really limited in scope. Um, and, I, and I say limited in scope, I'm going to say why for uh, a few reasons. Um, in terms of a domestic terrorism law moving forward. And I think it needs to be narrowly tailored. So we have a definition in the United States under 18 USC of the um, United States Code of domestic terrorism. But the only way you can charge an individual for an act of domestic terrorism, unless there's an international dimension to it, is if they use a weapon of mass destruction or an incendiary device, right? So if you're like carrying out a, a light arm attack using a, a pistol or a shotgun and, and you, you kill a lot of individuals, say in a synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, like Robert Bowers did, you're not gonna face a domestic terrorism charge. And I think these people who are doing events like this, not having that label of being a terrorist formally affixed to them is a significant racial equity issue. But I will say this, um, and I had a, 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 essentially a discussion with the senior director for national security um, for the ACLU on MSNBC a couple nights ago. And she makes some good points. And I agree with a lot of these points because I made these same points myself. Um, one point she didn't make in our talk that I think we all have to think about is government has overreached in the past as it relates to um, using surveillance tools against perceived political enemies. And while um, I believe the Biden administration will ensure that law enforcement does the right thing on how surveillance tools are used. Um, you can't assume that four years from now or eight years from now, the next administration will. And I, I cite the 1960s FBI counterintelligence program where the United States government illegally spied on nonviolent activists like Martin Luther King Jr., right? For political reasons. So the point I'm making here is if Congress passes a law it has to be very narrowly tarot and it has to have oversight. Um, so 
it, it, without that oversight, um, there could be a lack of accountability. And if there is overreach by the government, then we, we wouldn't necessarily have mechanisms in place to ensure that those who commit, committed the overreach are appropriately dealt with. Um, because I, I think we, we can't go back to the 1960s, right, where you had that illegal surveillance. We can't go to a point where um, privacy and civil liberties are, are being abused. So I really see a, a role where an extra layer of accountability could come in the form of, for instance, including the uh, Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board to review domestic terrorism cases over the course of, of a process in which perhaps a domestic terrorism law is passed. So um, FBI, for instance, doesn't overreach in their authorities because there is that historical example of that, Jason. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, for, as a, for a lay person, of course, that's what I'm thinking, too. And it seems to me that the way to counter that would be just, a, you know, some kind of clause in there that you're, you only can target people that are trying to, you know, incite political violence or violence against, like you said, protected groups. It, it's the violence component, right? That Absolutely. Clearly, you know, clearly Martin Luther King Jr. would not have been allowed under that rubric, right? So once the violence is there, you know, because some people are worried that like an, an, you know, an environmental group could be labeled because they're, you know, they want to end the fossil fuel companies or something. And, you know, some right wing government could say that's against, you know, American security. But that's not, you know, if they're not advocating violence, they're just, you know, they're just saying we're going to protest a pipeline. You wouldn't be able to do that. Do you think that's that would be enough? I, I think it has to fit the definition that we have for domestic terrorism today, which obviously, um, if you look at the 18 USC, it includes politically motivated acts of violence. It includes um, the the clause trying to essentially create or intimidate um, an audience, so creating a sense of, of fear. So it's, it's these, these three things, political motivation, violence, or a plot to commit acts of violence with an eye towards um, some kind of creation of an atmosphere of, of fear to intimidate or coerce. Without those three components to it, um, I think you would risk overreach because you, you can't um, take away people's rights to, to protest. And, and that's really important aspect of, of where I worry that if there is, you know, too far swinging of the spectrum, right? The pendulum going too far in, in pushing for like too broad of a, you know, domestic terrorism law, you risk that. So I 100% agree with you. Okay. All right. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I want to explore a little bit more on this kind of issue of white supremacy, white nationalism, there's kind of a lot of Christian imagery too in a lot of the, 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 the insurrectionists on January 6th. And, and I guess, you know, you, you brought in the definition, you know, to kind of more right-wing extremism, et cetera. And I get that, that not all of this has a, a racial component. It might be take away guns or, you know, anti-government. But how much do you think the racial component is kind of underlying all of these other things, right? You know, I'm just curious, even if it's not explicit, how much do you think it might be implicit in the kind of full spectrum of this movement? So there's definitely an, an implicit aspect to this. There is the aspect of um, policy concerns these movements all agree on, anti-immigration, anti-globalization views, that both white supremacists and anti-government groups tend to take, whether it's the Oath Keepers or the, the, the neo-Nazi Atomwaffen division types of the world. So there, there are things that bind them in way of policy. And what binds them, including the Proud Boys, is this perception that um, Western civilization looks a certain way, right? And uh, I think 
unfortunately, some of our politicians have painted a picture that there can be uh, an effort in the United States where we go back in time um, to, to when things were quote unquote better, right? And uh, the, the implication is that when things were better is when um, America was more white. Uh, and the idea that the United States um, is allowing too, too many immigrants into the country, for instance, uh, to me, has a, a a white identitarian aspect to it, and and that creates these us versus them cleavages, right? Us in the sense of your um, stake in this country could become eroded if we continue to become overly globalized and the borders are open and people who don't like look like you come in and then you're going to lose your political power and, and then um, you will lose your, your place in society. And the perception is your place in society should be at, at the very top levels within society um, where you can exert political and economic influence. So in that sense, there is this implicit um, race component to it. And some of these groups, unfortunately, and individuals who populate the milieu um, have tried to leverage Christian symbols and symbols of other religions, um, even though it's not Christian religions, and co-opt those symbols. And I'll tell you a story um, about where I've seen this. And uh, in, in using that as a lure to bring more individuals into their, quote, in-group, right? And that in-group being sort of a, a broad tent that includes, you know, white supremacists and others, right? But unfortunately, you have a lot of these, you know, maybe Christian, you know, identitarians, evangelicals who don't understand what's happening, and they get co-opted into this movement. And that's a real concern. So just walking around the streets of Monterey, I'll just tell you, um, I, I see um, a, a, a banner down the street for me that says an appeal to heaven, and it has a, you know, a pine tree on it, and then next to it, a Jesus 2020 a, a flag. And, and a woman who goes outside and blows a shafar, which actually a shafar, of course, is, is associated with um, Judaism. And, and you saw those same symbols. I saw all three symbols on the 6th of January. So you have this merging uh, of, uh, of symbols. And the shafar is really important because blowing the horn um, means uh, you know, we're going to rebel. And of course, that symbol has been co-opted by, by this individual and others in a sense of saying we are rebelling against what they perceive to be um, a, a government that's going to take power soon, because um, we're talking, say, January 6th, um, in the form of Joe Biden, and that is perceived uh, by the administration as not being uh, correctly elected. So there must be a rebellion against it. So I am very worried about sort of this cross-pollinization of, of Christian imagery um, and how some uh, right-wing actors like white supremacists try to use that imagery to bring more people to their movement. And people don't understand what's happening in a lot of these cases. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly, again, from the layperson perspective, it seems like white people are overrepresented in these groups in the sense that I don't, I think America is about 70% white, and it certainly seems like more than 70% from at least the imagery. Do you have any sense of kind of how dominated by people who identify as white these groups are? I think also, Jason, it is significantly um, more than 70%. I don't have a good figure I can give you. Um, there, there isn't a, a lot of really good data on like precisely how large the Oath Keepers are, the Proud Boys are. They try to inflate their numbers and make themselves look larger than, than they really are also. So I'm always kind of looking skeptically at their, their own numbers and estimates. But if you look at the pictures and the imagery in which you know, the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys are marching, 
<laughs> certainly more than 70% white, right? So there, there is that aspect to it. 100%, um, you know, more than, you know, the, the population of the United States, 70%. Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, so, I, you know, I, I, there's a lot of people who are being arrested. They, they say it's, you know, the biggest kind of manhunt, or I guess in, in this case, you know, there's a lot of women too. Um, but, uh, but, you know, since 9-11, and, you know, we're starting to see some pretty serious charges being leveled against a lot of these people. Are how How do you assess the kind of the, the severity of charges and the, you know, the thoroughness of the, the people they're rounding up. Do you think it's up to the task? Do you think it's sufficient to really send the, the message that this is not going to be tolerated in, you know, in a democratic society? Well, I, I think there's two parts to this answer, right? One, one side of me says, um, no, I don't think the charges are going to be sufficient for the gravity of what transpired. And I think part of the reason goes back to the fact that not one of these people, the vast majority of whom were white, um, who are being charged for federal crimes, and there's some who are facing state charges too, um, but in those cases as well, none of those crimes, because there is no domestic terrorism law in which they can be charged, um, really will really reflect what they were, um, which in, in the minds of many, and I think even President Biden has said this, um, <laughs> we're acting in a way um, that a lot of people would label as, as terrorism, right? And in that sense then, um, I, I think because they're not ever going to have that, that terrorism label affixed to them, um, there is a perception I think that exists still that individual behavior along the lines of what we saw on January 6th could result in sentences that aren't going to be particularly um, impactful. And so I think it's not necessarily going to have a significant deterrent effect um, on, on individuals who may be looking at what happened on the 6th and making their own calculations about possibility of future violence and what, what the consequences of that could be. So, you know, we're, we're still, you know, we're, we're still a long ways to see what the exact sentencing will be, but I don't think it's going to be sufficient to serve as a deterrent effect. And again, I think part of the reason is because they're not going to be treated for what they were um, in many cases. Terrorists. I'm not saying all 190 people who've been arrested for federal charges plus are, are likely people who meet the definition of domestic terrorism, but <laughs> full well, some of those do, um, right? So uh, I, I think we, we have a, a issue again here of, of racial equity um, in, in a lot of ways, going back to my earlier point. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's unfortunate to hear that these charges might not you know, be rise to the level of seriousness, but, but we'll, we'll have to see. And then again, that gives more reason for that, that new narrowly ta tailored law to really up the, the charges for future events. Um, if they transpire, we hope not, but certainly um, possible. Uh, obviously, we have a big uh, Senate you know, trial coming up for the president for his second impeachment. It seems pretty clear that the Republicans are going to en masse vote to, you know, basically not convict him, which is just kind of shocking, um, you know, given the gravity of what he did. Seems like the Democrats are putting together a pretty significant case. I guess, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you have any thoughts on how, you know, how necessary it is to really go through this trial. I have, I have some liberal friends who are like, this is a distraction. We're going back. Let's move forward. Biden has so much work to do. We have to give people, you know, stimulus checks. And they kind of see it as a distraction. I've been arguing against that. I think it's incredibly necessary to, you know, treat this with the gravity that it is, even if the Republicans are going to, to free him or not free him, but, you know, not convict him. Because we can't let 
basically terrorist sympathizers set the bar, you know, just because I, I, that's what I told my friend. I said, I said, if you mean that, you know, that means people who think insert, you know, insurrection is okay, they get to hold our legal system hostage. I just don't get the logic. So I'm curious where you come down on that. Is this a distraction or is this a needed legal, you know, um, process? So I, I don't necessarily think these are mutually exclusive if, if the process unfolds quickly as it ought to. I, 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 what I do worry about where your, your friends may have a point is um, this in a way presents another um, fora for the president to, to get attention and the attention he gets, any attention he gets, I find to be problematic because it, it does tend to radicalize individuals and and, and further their perceived grievances. So I, I hate seeing President Trump get more oxygen because I think that could inflame situations and, and motivate individuals to do harm, right? On the other side of the question, I, I agree with you though. If you, if you can have a process that unfolds quickly and you know, I think he's going to be acquitted as well, Jason. And I, I think you have to go through that process because you know, the language that he used, I believe, did have an effect inciting um, the, the mob who, who went to the Capitol to try to hang his own vice president. And I think there needs to be consequences to that. There needs to be a discussion, but it, it can't be drawn out. It has to be a fast trial um, because the United States does need to move on from President Trump. Um, and if we don't move on from the president, the former president, we really do run the risk of continuing this, this cycle of radicalization um, that in, in many ways he's been partly responsible for um, you know, uh, occurring, right? Uh, so I, I, I wanna see a fast trial, um, but I, I do you know, see both sides to this argument. No, that's fair, that's fair. Well, maybe taking on the kind of the attention issue, it seems like finally, 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 many of these you know, social media companies have taken seriously cutting some of the accounts for QAnon, obviously Trump getting cut from Twitter. And so you're seeing some type of reckoning. We'll have to see how long it endures because these people obviously, you know, reconstitute themselves and, you know, try to get back in. But but how how important do you think that the social media piece of this in terms of them being really vigilant to keep the extremist groups off of these mainstream platforms? Very important. Social media is the number one reason why we are in the situation we are in today. That and the use of social media to propagate conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories have long been part of the United States, unfortunately. John Birch Society, you know, conspiracists, but they never achieved the resonance that we have seen with groups like QAnon because they didn't have the mechanisms like social media to propagate their message. So when I see Twitter and Facebook and Google take action against individuals who are inciting violence or um, spreading false information that are in contradiction to their own internal private company policies, they're making the, the right moves. But it's the proverbial, the, the horse is already out of the stall challenge, right? So, mm -hmm. and they, they close the barn door before, you know, after the, the horse is out. So, you know, it, it's, it's a little too late, um, but it's good that they're finally taking action because this is one way to, to tamp down on the future spread of, of conspiracy theories. 
um, and disinformation that are so part and parcel with this movement's rise. And I, I just would also argue for those who say that this is a, a violation of First Amendment rights, then um, people don't really understand how the First Amendment works. Uh, First Amendment is when the government um, would require these companies to take action, and that's not what's happening here. These companies are taking action on their own. Um, these are private companies. Uh, they are not um, conduits in, in which people have full license to say whatever they want, whenever they want over those platforms. So I don't really look at this as, as censorship. I look at this as content moderation. I don't see this as an abridgment of First Amendment rights. I see this as enforcement of company policies. And of course, these companies themselves have their own First um, Amendment rights too. And if they were compelled to allow for somebody else's speech to write on their platforms, um, that would likely be a violation of their own First Amendment rights, right? As, a, as an entity, a legal entity. So um, that's where I come down on that issue. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, yeah, it is amazing the bad faith arguments from the right on this free speech. I mean, it's such garbage. And I mean, and also these are the people who, you know, champion the free market and companies should be able to do whatever they want. But then when they exercise their, you know, their content moderation, it's censorship, right? It's, it's just, it's just such bad faith nonsense. It's a double standard um, argument that they yeah. make. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's incongruous with their, their, their perspective on capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, like you said, these are private companies. They're not, it's just, these aren't public spheres, you know, this is not a public way. Now, again, we could argue with Facebook and Twitter being billions of people, maybe they should be regulated like public utilities or something at some point. I get that. But currently, as they're construed now, it's certainly definitely not a First Amendment issue. Um, you know, coming to the kind of the, the, the final question here I have for you is, you know, I've been reading a lot more about this kind of counter narrative that people are talking about. And it's, it's certainly been decades in the making and it's not new, but, you know, about the American project as a kind of an inclusive multicultural project around shared values, shared promise, shared opportunity, and less about religious racial identity, which is where you get these kind of more kind of Christian white identitarian movements. Do you think that narrative, which clearly I think the Biden-Harris administration is trying to promulgate, do you think constantly reinforcing that and emphasizing this kind of shared multicultural vision could be an effective counter to the kind of, you know, the, these right-wing extremist groups that, that we're seeing, you know, um, react so violently? I, I wish it were, Jason, but I, I will say these narratives have been used, this idea of multiculturalism, um, globalization, um, the, the idea of uh, having a society uh, that, that is multicultural in orientation are actually perceived to be um, inimical to, to these white supremacist organizations um, who, who push against that narrative and use it as a grievance to essentially attract members to their organizations. So I, I, I'm not sure um, it, it's going to achieve what um, it, it ought to. Um, I think there, there are going to always be, unfortunately, individuals within the United States who are going to push against that narrative. And they've been pushing against this narrative for a very long time. Um, th this concept of multiculturalism as a, as a threat is, is a, an enduring grievance um, within the far right milieu. And I don't think pushing a, a counter narrative along those lines necessarily will will achieve what we want to achieve unless other things happen um, at the same time to include uh, Silicon Valley doing a better job ensuring that uh, social media is more responsible about the rhetoric that, that 
is propagated online. But I really do think we have to go back even further and think about um, media and digital literacy in, in the classroom so people understand that you have white supremacists who are trying to use false grievances to inspire them to, you know, these young people to join your movements because people don't really understand their, their digital identity. They don't understand like what are the reputable sources of media. And I really do think that's where we need to begin. Um, have educators who understand these issues and understand how white supremacists may be trying to manipulate the youth um, early on so that doesn't happen to them is going to be the, the number one thing we can do. Yeah, well, that's, uh, it's a little disappointing to hear that response, but I think, you know, where that's probably <laughs> reality. And it means that you have a long time of, of full employment <laughs> uh, because this is not a short-term issue at all. This is, and again, really, like I keep saying to people, this is not new, right? This is America's DNA, right? We've been dealing with this in some variant for our entire, you know, history. And this is just the latest kind of incarnation, like you said, kind of metastasized and amplified by these new technologies. But really, the, this stuff's in our DNA, and uh, we're just going to have to grapple with it, you know, until until we don't, <laughs> whatever that is. Absolutely, um, you're 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 so right, Jason. This is a a a, a multi decades um, issue that's going to take a long time to to resolve. Four hundred years of of uh, racial inequity, because that that is at the the base of this, and these us versus them narratives will take some time to transcend. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're on the case, Jason. I, there's nobody, uh, I think, better to kind of tackle these issues. And uh, your insight's been really valuable here. So, so thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure, Jason. Nice to be on the program with you. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Jason Blazakis. He's got a real, real deep knowledge base there on all the key issues and just always really interesting to get his perspective. And again, really glad that Someone of his caliber is on the case. We've got a lot of work to do. My antidote for today is relatively straightforward, but I think important, which is I presume most, if not every one of my listeners here is not a racist and not a right-wing extremist and wants to fight against these movements and help defeat them. And my point here is, is that it's not enough these days to just not be racist, right? We have to be anti-racist. I take that from Ibram Kendi, uh, and I really think it's an important point, which is, you know, the America of 2021 is an America in which black and brown people have been held back and kept down for centuries. And so to just not be racist means we accept a status quo in which they are starting way, way, way behind the rest of us because of unfair, unjust practices. So what's needed to remedy that is not just everyone not being racist, but being anti-racist and undoing the racist legacy and helping to compensate people for the racist legacy. That's the way we develop true racial justice and equity. And that is complicated. There's not a quick fix for that, but I just think that mindset is really important, right? Again, I assume all of you listening here are not racist, but that is not sufficient. We also need to, again, dismantle the legacy of racism. And that takes a lot more active work. And that'll certainly be a topic of a future podcast as it has been in the past. So with that, everybody, uh, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please rate it, 
share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Uh, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And with that, everybody, have a great rest of the week. Take care. Thank you.